Okay, we're going to kind of jump right in this morning. After that, we're going to have a couple of issues with the microphone this morning, so we'll kind of work this out as we go. If it doesn't work, I'll pick up the handheld there. Um, all right, we're going to jump in, and we're going to look today at John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. I'm not going to waste a lot of time with setting this up. Uh, so let me return with you to remind you, because it's been a few weeks um, since we've, we've been kind of in the flow of John. Uh, in the flow of John, Jesus in chapter 4 was traveling from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and he met the woman at the well. And uh, he is going up to Galilee at that time to begin what we are going to call what is sometimes referred to as the great Galilean ministry. Now, Galilee is in the north. Jerusalem is in the south. Jerusalem is the big city. It's Washington, D.C. It's the home of the religious and political elite. It's sophisticated. Galilee is agrarian. It's a simpler way of life. And there are a lot of people that live up there in Galilee. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fishing. Uh, it, it's, it's people with families. And so Jesus is going to go up there, and he is going to spend a year and a half ministering in this region called Galilee. He moves his family to a place called Capernaum. That's where he moves Mary. And Matthew 4, 23 through 25, tells us about this, about this ministry. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, many of you have heard of the cities that are in Galilee, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Magdala, Mary the Magdalene was from Magdala, Tiberias, and Cana, Capernaum. And so Jesus went around, according to Matthew, teaching in those cities, all around in those synagogues. He went teaching, he went about healing, he went about casting out demons. During this time, he performs many of his most famous miracles that you've heard of. He heals Jairus' daughter. He casts the demons out of the demoniac in, in Gerizim. He heals the woman with a hemorrhage. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. This is the great Galilean ministry. And Matthew says in chapter 4 there, which we just read, that his fame is growing. Great crowds are following him. He healed every disease. Bookman said last week, it is conceivable that Maybe every single person uh, wasn't healed of something, but every person in Galilee knew of somebody who had been actually healed of a specific disease. Now, here's what's important. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to bounce around a little bit. We're going we're gonna to set up the feeding of the 5,000 from the New Testament a little bit this morning. So have your Bible handy. This all seems very successful. That's, that's what's key here. Things are going well. The disciples probably believe that they are at the ground floor of the Messiah's uh, main operation here. There is, there is fame. There is miracles. There's nowhere to go but up from an outside perspective. 
But Jesus knows otherwise. And he said this to us in John chapter 2. It says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. All right, so John skips over almost all of that great Galilean ministry. He leaves that to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he chooses to include one event from that period, and it comes at the very end of that period, and it is the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, except for the events that happen at the end of Jesus' life, the only event that occurs that is written down in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000, which means John must think it's important. And the feeding of the 5,000 is important because it is the second of two major rejections that take place at the end of this great Galilean ministry because it turns out things aren't going as well as they appear to be. It's easy to follow Jesus when the crowd is following Jesus. It's easy to follow Jesus when things are going your way. But what about when the crowd dissipates? What about when following Jesus starts to feel like you're swimming upstream? It is becoming more difficult to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. Lines are being drawn, and there's more at stake. And there are Christian doctrines that stand in stark contrast to conventional wisdom. You cannot believe that humans are created in the image of God and support racism, abortion, or transgenderism. The doctrine of original sin is deeply offensive because it means that there's something wrong with us in our hearts. The whole idea of biblical revelation is difficult to accept because it means that truth is objective. It means that there's truth that is coming from someone that is outside of me. And at the end of John 6... And we won't see it till next week. I try to do self-contained sermons, but this week there's going to be very much a part one and a part two because chapter six is over 70 verses. But at the end of chapter six, John 6:66, an easy verse to remember. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus says some hard things and that crowd walks away. Because the cost of following Jesus is too high. I do think, by the way, that it is very possible that we are in a time of sifting in the American church. Because it's easy to profess belief when there is no cost. I go to work. I play on a team. I go to school. I belong to a political party. Oh, and I'm a Christian. I go to church. But what happens when... One piece of that life starts to be in opposition to another piece of that life. What happens when your job says, you can't work here and believe that? What happens when your school says, you can't be admitted to this institution if you affirm those things? What happens when your friends say, I don't want to be associated with you if you believe that? And we are seeing social pressure starting to be put on Christians who believe the truth claims of the Bible. Our right to gather here may be guaranteed by the Constitution, but what happens if your presence here this morning starts to bring shame on your family and on your friends 
or your place of employment. And my goal is to equip you to not have that John 666 moment. I don't want you to have a moment where you say, these things have become so hard, and you walk away from Jesus. After the crowds walk away, at the very end of the chapter, Jesus turns to the twelve in verses 67 and 69, through 69, and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, please give us, Hope Bible Church, our children, our loved ones, Lord, give us grace that we would say, where else would we go? The person who perseveres does so because he knows that Christ has everything we need. So, we're going to spend this morning and next uh, dealing with John 6. This week, we're going to look at the miracle itself, and next week, we will look at Jesus' teaching in light of that miracle, the famous bread of life discourse, uh, which Jesus delivers on the next day. But I mentioned there are two major rejections, and I think we'll be able to understand the first rejection, the second rejection, the feeding of the 5,000, better if we take a look quickly at the first rejection. So, turn with me to Matthew 12. Matthew 12 would also be at the, towards the end of what we're calling here the great Galilean ministry. So Jesus has already been going around, and he's doing all this teaching, and he's doing all this healing and casting out demons. So this is the uh, sort of famous incident that you might know as the uh, unpardonable sin. This is what this is. So Matthew 12, uh, 22 through 23, begins with a miracle. A demon-oppressed man, a demon -oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And I want you to notice the reaction of the people here. These are the people of Galilee. These are the simple folks. Just earlier, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. And here he heals a man. This is, this is some serious healing. He is blind, he is mute, and he is demon-possessed. And once again, just to be clear, Jesus is performing real, no-kidding-around miracles. That guy was blind, and he couldn't talk, and he had a demon, and now he can see, and he can talk, and there is no demon. These are messianic signs. These are things that in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets would have pointed out as evidence of Messiah. Okay, so here's the thing. This is what the people are saying. They are turning to the religious leaders, and they are saying, this guy isn't the Messiah, is he? And notice that they're asking the religious leaders, should we believe this guy? They have all the evidence... They have God's word. They see the miracles. They should be able to believe without the endorsement of the Pharisees. And the religious leaders here are in a real bind. So these miracles are indisputable. And this is a problem that the religious leaders in, in uh, Israel have the whole time that Jesus is on earth. They are seeing that these are real no kidding around miracles. He's not a trickster. He is actually healing, and he is actually casting out demons. But they can't have Jesus be the Messiah. 
They can't deny the miracles, but they can't have him be the Messiah. And so they come up with another explanation. Verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Okay, we have no explanation for this. He can't be the Messiah, so therefore he must be a messenger, an agent of Satan. By the way, I thought of this encouragement. I was encouraged by this 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 week. As the tide turns against the Orthodox Christian faith, we may very well find that when we speak up for what is true, we will be accused of, of being wicked. So, you know, speaking truth about sexual sin is hate. Speaking up for the rights of the unborn is oppression. Adoption is colonialism. I've heard that one. Uh, affirming a biblical view of manhood and womanhood is patriarchalism. Listen, even if you speak out against, like, racism, that, like, that seems like that might be a, a simple one to speak out against. You know, people from the other side will be like, oh, you're woke. You're a critical theorist, all right? So there's, like, there's no safe ground these days. And people will accuse you of being wicked. If you find yourself speaking the truth and being accused of being an agent of wickedness, you can know that Jesus also experienced that and much worse. And as with so many things that you're going through, he knows and he understands. Jesus is actually healing people of devastating illnesses, and he is accused of being satanic. So this leads to Jesus' explanation of the unpardonable sin, verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So this is the first major rejection at the end of the great Galilean ministry. It is the rejection of the religious leaders. So the people ask the, the leaders, is this the Messiah? And they say, no, he is doing the work of Satan. And Jesus responds, there's nothing more that can be done. I can't help you. You have had all the evidence that you need to believe. And you are ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. You, you can't expect to find forgiveness. All right, here's what's interesting. So right after this, Matthew 13, Jesus, the next day, it actually says the next day, he goes out and he says, everybody listen. All right, a farmer, he decides to go out and he decides to plant a crop. And he throws out some seed and some of it falls on the hard soil and some of it falls on the rocky soil and some of it falls on good soil and some of it falls on the thorny soil. Thank you very much. See you later. And he leaves. And in the following passage after that, his disciples go, what was that? Like, we don't have a clue what you're talking about. And so Jesus, he says, okay, first of all, I'm going to start talking in parables. Look at uh, verses 11 through 13 in Matthew 13. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not, even what he has will be taken away with him. This is why I speak in parables, because seeing, them do not, they, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Side note, by the way, sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, preachers should use more illustrations because Jesus spoke in parables. And I could probably stand to use more 
illustrations, but not because Jesus spoke in parables. If you're saying that, you don't get why Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus spoke in parables not so that people would understand better. He spoke in parables according to what he says right here so that certain people wouldn't understand and that certain people would understand. He is actually speaking in parables as judgment against those who have rejected him. But secondly, what's important about that parable is this. I think that Jesus is laying out for his disciples and for us how this thing is actually going. Like, yeah, it seems like it's going really well right now. It seems like it's really successful, but here's the deal. That hard soil, that's people who have really hard hearts. And that the word of God, which is the seed, it's just going to bounce off. We all know that. Birds are going to eat it. No big deal. But the rocky soil, some of the seed is going to fall on this rocky soil, And they appear to receive the word of God with joy. Oh, great. God, we have seen your light. But it says when persecution and tribulation come, that's verse 21, they fall away because there's no roots. And then that soil, that that seed that falls on thorny soil, oh, they receive the word and they're so excited and they can't believe it. But then the cares of the world and persecution arise. And they don't have any roots either. And they don't bear any fruit. But then there's that good soil, and there is some. And some people are going to hear the word of God, and they're going to receive it, and it's going to bear fruit a hundred times in their hearts. And I think Jesus is explaining to his disciples and to us that things are not as good as they seem. What seems like success, and perhaps we've been seeing this in the, in the church of late, when things are easy, What seems like success and churches just exploding and people, you know, listening to Christian music and reading Christian books, sometimes that may only be an inch deep. And so there's going to be those thorny soil hearts and there's going to be those rocky soil hearts and they're going to fall away. And so Jesus is preparing us. Which soil are you this morning? And I got to tell you, it's the thorny and the rocky soil that I worry about. And that's, that's when I say I don't want you to be a John 666 Christian. I don't want you to be the rocky soil or the thorny soil. Because when tribulation and persecution comes, do you have the roots that it's going to take to persevere? If our comfort and ease of life is threatened, and I, I have good reason to believe that that might be what hits us most, is the loss of the ease and the loss of the comfort. Will you remain faithful? And these are going to be questions that are going to be of utmost importance to all of us. When I said at the end of the service a couple of weeks ago, I pray for the safety of this congregation, I don't mean physical safety. I mean spiritual safety, that God would keep us in Christ and that we would persevere through whatever lies ahead. So that brings us to the feeding of the 5,000, finally. <laughs> but turn with me to Mark real quick. Mark chapter 6. One more spot I want you to see. Mark gives us a little insight into the lead-up to this miracle. Look at verse 7. See, Jesus had sent the 12 out on their first real mission. 12 young guys, you guys go out in pairs. Here, I'll read it. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, 
but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. And if in any place they do not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Wow. I mean, if I was one of those 12 guys, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And they come back and they're really excited. Look at verse the next verse there, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while, for many are coming and going, and they have no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place all by themselves. All right, so this is the setup for the feeding of the 5,000. And John expects us to know this. He knows you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He expects you to know that Jesus is going across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples because they have just finished a major season of ministry. Things have gone well, but they are tired and they need some time to eat and to rest. And so Jesus says, let's take a little camp out. Let's get in the boat. We'll go to the other side of the lake and we'll just spend a little, little guy time together, just the 13 of us. So imagine how sad those guys would have been when the crowds start showing up. Turn to John 6. We're not going anywhere else, I promise. Mark says that the crowd where they were going ran ahead on foot. The Sea of Galilee, like, sea is kind of a little bit of a bigger word. It's more of a lake. It's a big lake. You can see the other side if it's a clear day pretty easily. So Jesus and his disciples are in the boat going across to the other side, and the crowd is running on foot around to be there when he arrives. Look at verses 1 and 2, John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And remember, this is supposed to be R&R. &R. This is supposed to be rest and relaxation. But Jesus always responds to the needs that are presented to him. I think he always just looks up to heaven and says, Okay, Lord, we're, we're going to do this right now. Mark actually says, When he saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to feed them? No. Mark says he began to teach them. He had compassion on them, and he began to teach them. He knew there were some very important things that this crowd needed to know. Yes, we all know that he feeds them. Yes, we know that Jesus' compassion meets physical needs. And probably all of us in this room could spend a lot more time thinking about that. But first, he teaches them. So what we can know is that it's actually compassionate and loving to teach people what they need to hear, even if they don't like it. The gospel writers tell us that there were 5,000 men, which means there would have been possibly a lot more people than that, including women and children. And Jesus uses this occasion once again to challenge the faith of his exhausted disciples. Look at verses 5 through 7. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, 
for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. You can talk to Erica afterwards. I don't do well with uh, tired and stressed. Like jet lag, just got somewhere, trouble at the airport, I'm breaking down. Like I'm, I'm like, I, 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 I got nothing here. And I can just tell you this. If Jesus had invited me after a big week across the lake for a little camping, R&R, I probably would have been sad about the camping part of it, but I would have been like, that's great, I'll take that. And then if he had been like, now feed 5,000 people, I would have been done. I got nothing. How in the world can 12 people provide for 5,000 plus people? Only in John's account do we read about the little boy who came prepared. Who knows, who knows if he was the only one who brought some lunch that day, but we know this, he was the only one who bothered to offer what he had. And it seems that this boy has more faith than the disciples because Andrew says, what are we going to do with five loaves and two fish? Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Jesus provides enough food that everybody eats to their fill and there are 12 baskets left over. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think. This is a real deal, amazing miracle. I don't know how it went down. I was thinking about that this morning. Jesus just keeps handing out the food. Maybe it's in a basket, you know? Like just every time he reaches in, there's food. Maybe he's tearing off bread. The Bible explicitly says that he hands it out. Maybe he's just tearing off the bread. And just as long as he's tearing it, there just keeps being bread. I don't know how it happened. But do you know that Jesus will provide for us everything we need and more. And I think there's a lot of people right now, Christians, who have so much, and there's so much fear that we're going to lose it. What are we going to do? How about this? We trust that Jesus will provide, and he will provide abundantly. Now, I have lived a most blessed life, and I, I can say that I've, I've never been hungry. I've never wondered when my next meal was going to come. The one context I have for this, and I, I don't like to talk about myself like this, but the one context I have for this is adoption. That We've adopted five times, probably to the tune of over $150,000. And each time we have believed for different reasons that God has... Let us. And one of the things that I've loved about doing that is because it has been a moment in my life when I have been able to see that God really, really does provide over $150,000 and not a dime of debt, checks arriving in the mail, garage sales where we make exactly the amount we need to make the next payment, and then carefully getting through China only to find we've got more money left over than we thought that we had. Jesus can do 
exceedingly and abundantly more than any of us can ask or think. Brothers and sisters, let me just say, if America falls apart, Jesus will provide for us. Jesus will take care of us. He will give us the things that we need. So that's it. That's the miracle. You may be thinking, wow, it took us like two weeks to get through that introduction to that amazing miracle. But the importance of this miracle lies in what happens after it. And this is where John, writing decades later, starts filling in the gaps. Look at verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Once again, from our perspective, this seems like a good response. The people want to make Jesus king. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to make Jesus king. They refer to him as the prophet. Let's go make him by king. It even says, never noticed this until the, it, by force. Let's make him king by force. Let's get Caesar out and Jesus in. For the ha- perhaps the disciples are even thinking, this is it. This is the beginning. It's all about to start happening. I've lingered on that phrase. Take him by force. Listen to John Calvin in his commentary. He says, with impetuous violence... They wished to make him king, though against his will. It is astonishing that 5,000 men would have seized with such daring presumption that they did not hesitate by making a new king to provoke themselves against Pilate's army and the vast power of the Roman Empire. And Calvin speculates that the only reason they were, only, they were willing to risk that is that they conceived of Jesus as a prophet, and they thought that they were bringing the might of God. We are going to rebel against Rome, and by holding Jesus up out in front of us, we are going to bring the might of God against the Roman Empire and thus ensure our success. Jesus is like a gigantic rabbit's foot that we're going to like hang on our chariots as we go against the Roman Empire. Let's make him king. He can provide us with food, raise the dead, heal us when we get stabbed with a sword. There's no way we can lose. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I read somebody who tried to make the case that that word withdrew there actually means flee. I spent a little time on that because I was like, man, that'll really preach if that's the case. I think it just means withdrew. So either way, Jesus got out of there. Jesus withdraws. Mark adds, by the way, that he went to the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus will not be used. Jesus will not be our good luck charm. Jesus has no interest in our war, carrying a flag that says Jesus in front of your crusade doesn't mean that Jesus wants any part of your crusade. And and here's the insight that I think has just really stuck with me this week. There is a difference between trying to force Jesus to be king and bowing down to his lordship. Jesus won't be the king of your kingdom. He's the king of his kingdom. And we bow down and submit to that. 
And this is so important to understanding Christ and his mission and the cross and the resurrection. Because remember, Jesus only does what the Father intends for him to do. And his path to glory had to go through the cross. This is the famous uh, interaction with him and Peter. Who do people say that I am? You're the Messiah. You're Christ, the Son of God. Okay, well then I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to raise again. And Peter takes him inside and says, No, Lord, that will never be. And what what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. I, I will not be distracted by your notions of what it means to be Messiah. I won't be used by you. I think... I think, by the way, this is why Jesus withdraws to the mountain to pray. He's like, I, I, I got I to go talk to the Father. I will not be distracted from what God the Father intends for me to do. And that involves being king because of a cross, not because of a bunch of people who want to make me king out here on the side of this lake. So he sees the danger here. He sends his disciples away, which, I mean, you just got to, they got to be like, What? what is this? No, go, go, go. But they want to make, I know, just go. This is dangerous. Get out of here. And he goes up on the mountain to pray because he's going to do things God's way, not man's way. Christian, are you brokenhearted that Christ's kingdom isn't bursting into the world right now? I I am. Uh, Does it make your heart ache to see the things going on around us and to see people sort of running headlong into darkness and shaking their fists at God as they go? I ache more than ever. I have prayed more than any other time in my life in 2020 for Jesus to return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I mean it. But Jesus will not be made king by human means. We cannot legislate the gospel. We know this. No human king, president, prime minister is ever going to rule in justice and righteousness. You can't add Jesus to your political party. Jesus will come his way. And the first time his way was to come in humiliation through a cross. And the next time it'll be in glory in the clouds. And Daniel 7 says that he's going to be the rock that destroys those world kingdoms. He's not going to change that kingdom to make it more like he's going to destroy it. And he's going to do his own thing. And the rest of John 6 makes it clear why he walked away. His discourse on the bread of life will explain that the people are more interested in their physical needs than they are in their spiritual needs. And Jesus means to meet their spiritual needs. Verses 16 through 21 contains another really amazing miracle. Jesus goes away on the mountain to pray. He sends the disciples away in a boat. At night, the sea becomes rough. It actually says in one of the accounts that he sees them struggling and he walks out on the water to meet them. This is the one too, by the way, where it says, and he was about to pass them by, just walking on the water, and they flag him down. Look at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread. 
So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got themselves to, into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So now this frenzied mob that's already run all the way around the lake to meet him, now they get in the boats and they head for Capernaum because they assume that he's going home to find him again. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me because, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And we're going to stop there today, and we will pick up the rest of that next week. And I, I want you to stick with me. Come back. Hear the rest of this. But notice that Jesus, he doesn't answer that, their question. Jesus, how did you get here? And he says, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. You want a full belly. I want to give you fullness of life. And again, we might think to ourselves, wouldn't we say, isn't it good for Jesus, to, for a person to seek Jesus for any reason? I mean, at least they're seeking Jesus. Apparently not. Because Jesus isn't looking to meet our needs as we perceive them. He himself wants to recognize our need as he perceives them. Wants us to recognize our need. So, we're going to stop here until next week. I know that there are a lot of concerns on people's hearts. But like I said, what concerns me the most for you dear brothers and sisters in this room is that even though the foundations of our life and our way of life may be shaking, I don't want you to be afraid. And I'm speaking to myself here because we have to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in. The United States is not Christ's kingdom. You can call it a Christian nation, but I'm sorry it's not. And for thousands of years, empires, nations, kingdoms have come and gone. Babylon, gone. Assyria, gone. Rome, gone. America will be no different. And y'all, if our hope is America as we have conceived it, plus Jesus, we're going to be in big danger of being John 60, 66 Christians. When that foundation is gone, we're, we're at risk of saying, you know what? This is too hard. I'm out. But we sing. Sorry about this, Tyler. Didn't think of this till this morning. We sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that? My hope is built on nothing but Christ. And we will see Jesus clarify that perspective next week as he describes himself as the bread of life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, our King, you who are seated right now at the right hand of the Father, waiting for your enemies to be made a footstool under your feet, would you guard us? Would you protect us? Would you help us to persevere? Please. Father, even as we look around in these uncertain times and we see so many things that we depend on shaking, help us to put our hope in nothing less than Jesus and what he provides. Father, I pray that you would help us to fear the one who can destroy the soul and the body in hell and not man who can simply harm
the body. Father, help us to take these things seriously with urgency, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our families, that we would all be people who would say, where else would we go? Because Jesus has the words of eternal life. Do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. have much to think on. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking, as David said, really his desire, uh, we see that in the text, a desire to keep us, uh, and that John 6,